Hi there, my name is Adam Waters and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Okay, for our Living on Mission segment today, we are actually going to invite several people up from growth groups. Growth groups are an integral part of what it means to live a life in community. It's a place and a venue for us to be able to share our lives, learn of God's truth, and be able to um, work together in determining what is the best way to apply God's truth and will to our lives. Come on up, Pat. Let's have you stand right here. And so we are going to interview these fine people. You can take your masks off if you like. We're going to start with Adam Paoli. Adam, you've been attending and now you're co-leading uh, at least a couple groups. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, Faith Builders is the first and that meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and my wife will talk a little bit more about that. And then I'm also a co-leader of Band of Brothers, which is a men's group that meets on Thursdays. In We've got two groups, one in the morning and one in the evening. That'll be restarting on September 16th. And how has Band of Brothers specifically helped you in your walk with the Lord, and how might it help those who come? Uh, there's a lot of ways. I think the number one is the community that's been built. Uh, I believe that uh, before I came to the Lord, I didn't have a lot of really healthy relationships with other men, and the Band of Brothers has really taught me what that looks like. Uh, and has allowed me to kind of reinforce my identity as a Christian, surround myself with other Christian men, um, and you know pursue what has been a much better life because of the impact of these other men. And what's cool about it is it's a multi-generational group. We've got guys that regularly attend in their 20s all the way to their 70s. And it's really given me great examples, both from very mature Christians to immature Christians who just have or are on fire for the Lord, have given me great examples to follow. Yeah, there's something about learning about life in community where uh, newer Christians, people who are new to their walk, can actually watch older Christians, more mature Christians, deal with everyday life, uh, life on life term kind of thing. But also at the same time to watch us more mature Christians fail and to see how we get back up again. It's really, really important uh, to give encouragement in a, in a wise model for them. So I appreciate you and what you've been doing. All right, Vanessa, Mrs. Paoli. So tell us about the growth group you've been leading. Um, sure. I've been a part of Faith Builders since we joined GBC. Um, you know, when we walked through the doors here for the first time, we were met with an overwhelming sense of warmth and compassion. And um, the overarching message was, we're genuinely glad you're here. We want to know you. We want to get you plugged in. And we want you growing. And that message wasn't just for Adam and I, but for our children, too. So we were invited to participate in Faith Builders. And at Faith Builders, we study the Bible together and um, talk about the ways that it applies to our lives as individuals, as spouses, as parents. 
Um, and we invite the Lord in to work in us and between us and through us um, as, as we raise our children up in, in the Lord. Um, and, you know, since Adam and I joined GBC, we um, have certainly been through some challenging times. And I think that um, oftentimes when we're going through hard times, we think to ourselves, you know, it's, it's hard to expose the most vulnerable parts of ourselves. You know, we're all sinners, and we might think to ourselves, well, if I expose those parts of myself, maybe these people won't want to associate with me, much less continue to be my friends. And we were met with an overwhelming amount of unconditional love. And, um, you know, to have brothers and sisters walking alongside of you, loving you um, through, through difficult times is, has been beautiful. Yeah, it's something about these secrets that we keep that we assume that no one else can relate to and we hold on to them and allow them to dictate the way we live and as soon as we share them, we find, oh, everyone else says, oh, yeah, I've done that too or I've been there too or I feel that as well. So how have you seen uh, this group work in terms of results? Have you seen changes in your family and your kids and in yourself? Absolutely. Our children are so beautifully well-fed here spiritually. I mean, I think our children are more spiritually mature than I was in my or late in my early 20s, you know. <laughs> um, but um, our, our family has changed in that um, in our marriage and our parenting and in the relationship that we try to foster between our children, the Lord is at the center of everything. Um, and when we do go through challenging times and we reach out to our friends and brothers and sisters and faith builders, we know that any advice that we get is always going to point us back to our loving Savior. And, um, and, and there's an incredible amount of peace and security in that, that you know, whenever we're going through anything, we're never going through it alone. Well, amen. God bless you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Pat, you've been attending growth groups here for, well, a long time. How long have you been attending growth groups here at Grace Bible Church? I, I can't remember. <laughs> it's been too many years. But ever well, I started in 77 here and um, probably have been part of something every year, if not a couple of things. Well, things have sort of changed since COVID uh, has happened, and so there have been some online groups. And that. Tell us about the groups you've been participating in over the last couple of years. Okay. Um, I would highly recommend the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Um, you grow spiritually. You deepen your uh, prayer life. The fellowship is heartwarming. And if you want to be in touch with the heartbeat of grace, Join us on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock on Zoom. So you don't even have to go out of your house. You can just join us. And the fellowship is just wonderful. We, I wouldn't miss it. So how has it helped you personally over the last couple of years or so? It's deepened my prayer life. Um, I've learned how to be a, more of a prayer warrior. I can't say that I'm as... Has, have achieved the maturity of those who I pray with, but I think that's the beauty of it. We learn how to pray by praying and being with others who are mature and do a wonderful job at praying. It helps you to learn how to connect with our Savior. Amen. That's wonderful. Thank you. And so you can see that we have a group here, Faith Builders, that is mostly age and stage. We have a men's group here. We have a prayer group. Every once in a while, we will do a group that is basically an elective, so surrounding a particular topic. And this is what we're going to have uh, with Bailey here. And so starting next Sunday morning, we are going to start an elective on, what is it again? I forgot. Listening. Oh. 
Okay, listening, I understand. All right. Yeah. And so tell these folks why uh, they would benefit from your class. I think we all would. Yeah, I think um, we're in a time and a culture where we're all really excited to talk and share our opinion and we're always encouraged to be speaking into people's lives, which is awesome. But at the same time, I think we've lost the other half of that, which is listening. And listening skills are really the things that allow us to build relationships, to connect with people in the church, outside of the church, to create that unity and to care well for one another. In my time uh, ministering to people, I've often had people say something uh, to the effect of, well, I just don't know what to say. Someone will bring a tremendous need or hurt, and I just I don't know the words to say. And it's often not the words that we say, it's the words that we hear that make the biggest impact and minister to people's hearts. People just want to be heard, don't they? Yeah, for sure. So when does your class, it starts next week, and how long does it run? It starts next week. It's five sessions, so it's a pretty short one. Each day is focusing on a specific topic. Um, whether that's you know the posture of listening, like the physical posture of it, um, responding. So how do we reply when we don't know what to say? Um, things like that. And then we're in room 122, which is hard to find. So we'll have lots of signs posted. But if you go out the back stairs here, it's right down stairs. And Bailey is in a doctoral program at Wheaton for counseling. And so if there's anybody in this uh, congregation at this time who would be poised to teach us how to listen, I think that would be useful. We're really blessed to have you. Thank you for doing this for us. And it's only five weeks, so if you're in another class, you're not missing a huge amount of time to be able to go uh, learn something from here. We're working on being able to record some of these classes as well, so we have the opportunity for those who want to stay in your growth group to be able to still hear the message and the content that has been shared. So uh, stay up here. Let me pray for you guys uh, and for your growth groups, and let's pray together uh, that God would bless this ministry. Father, I pray that you would uh, look upon us with favor, that you would grant us grace, that you would move in our hearts, Lord, to be willing to be vulnerable, to share, to come together in community with our brothers and sisters. We know, Lord, that as we look around us, the culture is heating up, our family is getting more complicated, life is more complicated, and often uh, we don't know what to do. But we do know, Lord, that you've given us each other as a body, and we are all in this together, Lord. We, are, uh, we need each other. Help us, Lord, to see that need and to be uh, willing to step into that. And, and Lord, will you bless us when we do? Would you uh, give us a new vision of who you are and who we are and uh, who we are as the body of Christ together as we do this? We thank you, Lord, for growth groups here at GBC, and we ask that you would bless and grow this ministry. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. All right, so now we have a special guest from the wilderness of Judea, believe it or not, from 2,000 years ago, we have John the Baptist himself. Go ahead. Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Con confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, like this, and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with, the, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, John. That was awesome. Let's give a round of applause to John here. Okay, go ahead. All right, at this time, the, uh, any of the young people who are here can go off to Kingdom Kids Celebrate. If you're visiting here and you have children in youth ministry, you can pick them up in room 232 after the service. One of the things I love about um, living in suburbia, maybe, maybe that's not even the right way of saying it, but I really appreciate that I have the same mail carrier every day. I love that when um, Jose comes, he waves, and I wave back. He's a wonderful carrier. When there is mail that doesn't quite fit in the mailbox or something that he suspects might be valuable, he'll come to the door and he'll actually give it to me instead of just forcing it into our mailbox and saying it's good enough. He is uh, kind when he comes and we talk. We'll often have a short conversation. It's a, it's a nice interaction to have somebody like that. And on hot days, uh, I will sometimes, when I have the opportunity and I catch him, offer him something to drink so he can go on his way. Because you know those vehicles, those are not air conditioned, you know. So he is often, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's working hard. But Jose needs to take a break. And when Jose takes a break, they send the other guy. I call this guy post guy number two. Post guy number two is nothing like Jose, post guy number one. When he carries the message, he barely makes it in the mailbox. When you wave, he doesn't wave back. When you seek to engage in conversation, he says, I have other things to do. Now, I don't necessarily blame this guy. I think that he's probably been given Jose's route in addition to his route, so he's probably very busy. But there is something about a messenger who comes with a positive attitude that makes us want to listen to what they are sharing. When someone brings an attitude of indifference or, or, or uh, disinterestedness, they will often uh, go about their day and you don't really want to hear what they have to say anyway. Well, this is true for us as well because really we are all messengers. We are all, as children of God, those who have been saved by grace, we are messengers of the gospel. We have been called to show and to demonstrate and to speak the truth of God's word, of God's salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes, though, I think you would agree, we carry the wrong message with the wrong attitude and for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we share the gospel because we feel obligated. Or sometimes we'll share the gospel because we think that's what other people expect of us. Sometimes we don't share the gospel at all. We share something related to it, but not quite it. Or we water things down in order to make it more palatable to the people to whom we're ministering. And so we need to be careful. And in this first passage in Mark that we're going to cover today, we have the opportunity to witness a witness. We have the opportunity to see the model of a messenger as we look at John the Baptist, we'll begin to understand, I believe, a little bit better about what we need to begin demonstrating in the way we deliver the gospel versus what we can let go of, because there's often things that we can put down. This week, we start a long series in Mark. This uh, has been 
the Lord sort of placed this on my heart that we've been doing a lot of topical passages and that we need to get back to exegetical passages. I certainly try to explain God's word each message that I give. But this will hopefully give us a broad sweep of what was likely the first gospel ever written. And so we are going to study Mark for the entire year. Okay? What I've done is I have lined up our Easter narrative with Easter in April and backed all the way to today to try to pack as much Mark into this time, okay? And then there's a few weeks after Easter as well where we finish up the book. So we're going to be in Mark for a while. So it's important for us to know exactly why Mark was written, to whom it was written, how it was written, and what themes are emphasized in the Gospel of Mark by uh, the Apostle. So a couple of basic or foundational understandings as it relates to this book. First, Like I said, Mark was probably the first gospel written. Now, this is debated among scholars. Some people still hold that Matthew was likely the first gospel. But for lots of reasons pertaining to the way the parables are laid out, who borrowed from whom and how things are written, it's likely that Mark was the first gospel. And that the other gospel writers, particularly Luke and Matthew, borrowed from them. Mark is the first of what is known as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark was likely written to Roman Gentiles. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person, so somebody who has no affiliation or understanding really of the Jewish religion and probably centered in Rome. The reason we know this is because it has very few Old Testament references. It doesn't have stuff in there related to the Jewish religion, and when it does, it explains it. So that people who would have no idea about Judaism would have some basis for understanding what Mark is trying to teach and the significance of what Jesus is saying or doing. There are three themes that are really prevalent through the book of Mark. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, we'll see in verse 1, we've already heard that this comes right center in the beginning. Jesus is the Son of God. The second theme is because he is the son of God, Jesus has divine authority. So we see Jesus conquering demons. We see Jesus uh, calming the storm. We see Jesus feeding 5,000, healing the sick and the paralyzed and the lame. We see Jesus dying and having the authority to take up his life again. And the third theme is Jesus as the suffering servant from Isaiah. Okay, the book of Isaiah, Old Testament prophecy, and it was seminal, extremely important to the understanding of who Jesus was uh, for the New Testament authors, particularly for Mark. And so he uh, makes this one of his main themes. Jesus is the suffering servant. So those are the themes in the book, and what is Mark trying to get from us? So as we're reading through all of these passages, it's important for us to know, okay, this is what Mark is ultimately trying to tell me in every parable, in every narrative, in every text within Mark that I read. First, we need to die to ourselves. I don't need to tell you folks, maybe I do, is that, and I've said it many times lately and in our prayers, is that the world is changing. And God has not called us to comfort, but to suffer. We need to be the best sufferers on the face of the planet. Because it is to this that we are called, and it isn't for nothing. We have something to look forward to, 
in the future that will make the suffering here meaningful. And we accept that and embrace that by faith. So we need to die to ourselves. Secondly, once we die to ourselves, we must do something else, namely live for Christ. We need to follow Jesus. There's the world's way. There's the flesh's way. There's our way. And there's God's way, the way of life and blessing and, yes, suffering. And finally, we must do it immediately. Immediately. In the book of Mark, the Greek word euthus is the word for immediately, and Mark uses it 40 times. He says, and immediately the man got up and took his bed, and immediately Jesus was driven into the wilderness, and immediately. This is the type of life response that Mark wants us to have as we respond to the gospel. To see who Jesus is, to see the power that he has, and to act accordingly now. Because we have a wonderful way of procrastinating until things seem easier or more palatable. So we need to die to self, follow Christ, and do it immediately. So let's take a look at this morning's passage. Turn with me to Mark 1, 1 through 8. For this whole series, I want to be using the New International Version because we are it. Those are the Pew Bibles. So if you don't bring your Bible and you don't want to read up here, you will actually have it uh, right in front of you, which is ideal. Um, We're breaking down today's passage into three basic sections. The call, the character, and the confession of God's messenger of the gospel. So let's begin with the call. Verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark starts with, in the beginning. Now, we've heard this before, this phrase, in the beginning. It's used in, first of all, in the book of Genesis. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did a new thing in the creation of something out of nothing. It is the beginning of all that we know is the universe. In the book of John, we see, in the beginning was the word talking about Jesus. Again, he was present at creation. He was present with God, and he predates the universe. He predates reality as we know it. In fact, John goes on to tell us that Jesus is reality itself born into a physical realm, the realm in which we live. So whenever God does something very, very important He starts it with the phrase, in the beginning. Mark uses this phrase here to describe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the inbreaking of God into his creation. The word here for gospel, in case you're wondering, is evangelion or euangelion or euangelion, depending how you're saying it in Greek. It's the word we get evangelism from. It's the word we get evangelical It's the word that is used to describe the proclamation, the heralding of something big. Something big. Believe it or not, the church did not invent the phrase good news in Greek. This is a term that's used throughout Greek literature quite often, and it's used of someone declaring a victory in battle. So, Uh, We hear about the story of Marathon, the runner who runs 26.3 miles from one place to the next to declare that Athens has won. I think it's Athens. That Athens has won. That proclamation is a heralding of the evangelium, the, the good news. It's used a little bit differently, though, in the Bible because in Greek texts outside of the Bible, it talks about the good news as in the plural. There's like one good news out of lots of good news, like the idea of like we watch the news. It's a rolling 
theme of different stories that are happening. This means there's only one good news. Singular. It is the only news that matters. So maybe a better translation would be the greatest news. This is the greatest news that Mark is declaring to us in this gospel, in his word. And we need to make sure that we're paying attention to what that is because this is a huge shift in everything that God had been doing in his plan of salvation. Mark says Jesus is the Messiah. We know this. The Savior's promise through the Old Testament, starting at Genesis 3. This word Messiah, it comes from the word uh, Mashiach, which means one who is anointed, or the anointed one from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is the word Christos. Okay, so Jesus' last name is not Christ. We often say that, especially when I talk to people who are new to the faith. They'll say, oh, Jesus is first name. Christ is his last name. It would be perhaps even more accurate to say Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus, the Messiah. You see, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the plan of salvation, the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament to come and to save. And finally, he calls him the Son of God. While Messiah speaks to this role, Son of God speaks to his relationship to us and namely, mostly, to the Father. This is a key element to Mark's gospel. He's more than a Son of God. We're all children of God. Mark is the Son of God, made in the same image and likeness of God himself. Jesus is the same essence. He is God of God. And what theologians would say is that he is eternally generated. He's always been the Son and will always be the Son of the Father. So that is some background information. That is the preface, the preamble to Mark's gospel. And just as Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, Mark links it to the Old Testament. He says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's ministry, this is who this is speaking about, is John the Baptist. John's ministry was foretold 700 years before he arrived. And when we look at this passage, it says it right here, that God would send one before him that would herald and declare the coming of the kingdom. Actually, this passage here is a conglomeration of two passages. It's not just Isaiah, it's also Malachi 3.1. Listen to what Malachi 3.1 says. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. Listen to what Mark is saying. Listen to what God is saying here in Malachi. God is saying, Before I come, I will send a messenger. And then Mark links this passage to Jesus' appearing. So what does that tell us? Right from the outset of the book of Mark, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In Isaiah 43, it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Jesus is is the divine second person of the Trinity. He is God, very God of God. 
Malachi in 4.5 later on says that Elijah would be the forerunner of the great day of the Lord. As we read the Old Testament and God says, I will appear at the end and when I come, one will come before me and he will come like Elijah. In Matthew 1.17, the angel of the Lord, if you know this story, appears to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and says that his son, the one who would be born, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and so fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4.5. That son, like I said, was John the Baptist. This is who we read about this morning. This is who we learn about. Now, when we hear John the Baptist, we need to warn ourselves against assuming that he is denominationally a Baptist, as if he holds a Bible and preaches hellfire and brimstone. Okay? John is not a Baptist. John is a baptizer. And sometimes in translations, we'll actually see that. We'll have him listed as John the baptizer. He was Jesus' cousin. He was born six months before Jesus. And though John was foretold specifically... um, Lost track. So we're going to skip it. All right. All of that is information that we need to go for. The first point from today's text that we need to understand well as it pertains to how to be a messenger of God is this. As a messenger of the gospel, you have been made for this moment. There are times where, I don't know about you, but when I was younger especially, I would say, oh, I wish I was born. Now, don't judge me on this one, but I said, oh, I wish I was born in the 60s. The 60s is where I wanted to be. The old Adam. I'd say, wouldn't it be great to walk with Jesus, to be one of his disciples, to sit at his feet, to be at the feeding of the 5,000? Wouldn't that have been awesome to be born 2,000 years ago? But if God wanted me and had planned for me to be born 2,000 years ago, he would have put me there. Just like today, you guys often will say, and I hear you say it to me all the time, I, I don't know what is going on. Why here? I wish it was different. And we'll look at the glory days. We'll go back. God made you for this moment, right now. There is a reason that you live in or around Illinois, Elmhurst. There's a reason you're watching online. There is a reason you're dealing with what you're dealing with, interacting with those with whom you're interacting in the very culture you're in. We were given life and a ministry at exactly the right time, God's time, because God has a plan. He has a plan for you, and he has a plan for people to whom you are going to speak one day. So, I mean, you guys know that I have lived a uh, rough life, many self-inflicted wounds. I did it on my own, and I fully am aware of that. I've been a drug addict. I've been to prison. I've been in trouble with the law and people, authority, all of my life. I've really struggled before I met the Lord. I thought I knew best. I thought I knew how to guide and guard my life. And so I had to go through so many consequences, so many consequences. Yet every single day, I come across somebody who either reaches out to me or I just manage to bump into who needs to hear a perspective on life that only I can provide at that moment. And so God has prepared me all of this time, utilizing my bad choices to prepare me to speak to somebody today. The exact same holds true for you as well. You might not have the same path I do. I hope you don't have the same path I do. 
You might be on a different path. You might have different struggles and different victories. You might have grown up in a different type of household with a different type of family, even in a different country. But God has prepared you to deliver a message to somebody next. In a very real way, once we get saved and we're brought into the family of God, we become part of the body of Christ, it's, the gospel is less about us. The gospel, instead of now becoming saved, becomes of how can I be part of God's grand plan in declaring the words of forgiveness, healing, and hope, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you look at your life and your salvation that way? I fear that some of us, myself included at times, will look at our salvation as, whew, I got out of this one. A get-out-of-jail-free card. And as soon as everyone else figures it out, things will be okay. But God has called us to something different, to walk this life at this time in the person you are for a reason. He's working a tapestry of lives and ministries throughout time and throughout people. You were made to deliver a message right now, at this moment. Maybe the people around you. Maybe the people at work. Is there somebody that the Spirit has been nudging you to interact with, to talk to, deliver the message of forgiveness, healing, and hope? Now, we might not always give the Roman road or the four spiritual laws, or we might not give the presentation of the gospel that we have been conditioned to give. But when we see what John the Baptist preaches here and what his confession is, we'll see it doesn't look like our confession. It points to the fact that Christ is Savior. That's all we have to do. That Jesus is the Messiah. Your ministry field, your mission field even, to which you have been called is at this very moment for this very reason. And what you need to do, we all need to look to God for the grace that we need to look beyond ourselves. To get out of our feelings sometimes. Stuck in our feelings every once in a while? I don't know about you. I get stuck in my feelings real quick. Suddenly everything else shuts down. Ministry what? Jesus who? We need to get out of our feelings, of our self-centeredness, of our fear, of our worry about what might happen, and give it up to the Lord so that we can free our heart up to do what he has called us to do. Speak. Declare the truth. And live it before others. With this honor, though, what you've been called to is an honor. But with this honor comes tremendous responsibility because you're not just carrying your message. You're carrying a king's message. And the person that you model to the person you're speaking to matters because it can either validate or invalidate what it is you are saying. So let's take a look at the character of the messenger of John the Baptist. Verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Listen to how he says that. And so John appeared. It says that John was pre-told, foretold. It says it in the Old Testament. They give the Old Testament quote. And then it says, and so John appeared. It was as if God's plans coming into action right before you as you read this page. God called it and he did it. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. As we look at this passage, we see that really our first instance of baptism in the New Testament. We need to talk a little bit about this because this is not exactly the baptism that we do as New Testament believers now, as those who have been saved, particularly, hopefully, at the beginning of our walk with the Lord. In the ancient Near East, all sorts of baptisms and washings and purification rites from various religions were common. This was not an unusual practice at all. In fact, it was a very sort of expected practice in the religious life of the people who lived in this area during this time. Now, our baptism, New Testament baptism, focuses mostly on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our identification with that death and resurrection. When we go into the water, it's as if we're dying. And when we come out of the water, it's as if we are living again. It's something of our way of identifying in community and before others that we are a child of God, okay? Jews practiced all types of washings as well. In fact, as you go up the southern steps uh, to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, uh, the Pool of Siloam is right below there. There's these ascending steps, and as you go up, you do another purification, you say another psalm, you go to the next purification, you go to the next psalm, and it was almost like... um, um, stations of the cross? I don't know if that's the right way. It's totally, uh, it, you, you know what I'm saying. There were stages of purification that occurred as they went up. These are called mikvot. Mikvot. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I need a mikvah. You know, I need to wash my face. I need to get cleaned up. Mikvot. This is not what John is doing. Mikvots were, mikvot were being used in Jerusalem near the temple. It was something that was done as part of that religious experience. But John... It's calling people into the wilderness, away from the religious establishment to something different. Not an external demonstration, but something that, it, or something that is just um, a, a token idea, but something different. To repentance. To repentance. What's interesting is that around this time, the Jews were reading other literature outside of the Bible. One of these is a book that we call Jubilees. And it gives us some insight into the intertestamental period, the time after the ending of the writing of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament in, I don't know, probably Philippians or something. So 40 AD like that. That period right there called intertestamental period. There's a writing in the book of Jubilees that says that at the end times, when the great day of the Lord appears and when he comes, that God himself would come and their sins would be forgiven if they repented. And in that repentance, that God would place within them a Holy Spirit. This sounds a lot like the gospel. Okay. So the religious psyche at the time in Jerusalem, particularly the people who are not the religious elite, were that something's happening. Maybe they can feel it. Do you feel like something's happening right now? They could feel that something was happening. And it says that all of the Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem go out to see him. This was a widely felt phenomenon that was occurring. They knew something was happening. They identified with what was happening as the end of days. Now, if you understand what was happening in Jerusalem about this time, the Roman conquerors were hard on the Jews. And every time the Jews wanted to rebel against them, it got worse. And so it was 
painful there. Their culture was being torn apart. There were outside forces coming to bear on who they were, seeking to impose their will upon the people and their religion. It's a lot like today. It's a lot like today. When these things happen, we tend to immediately move our minds to it's the end of days. It occurred after World War I. There was a big movement of eschatology and prophecy movements. It happened at World War II. It happened during the Vietnam War. And now it's happening today. I say that to not discount the importance of it. I just want you to know is that it's a normal response. And the normal response is, yeah, to look ahead, something's coming. Something is coming. You know, with that idea that God himself would appear when people repented and fill them with the Holy Spirit, John identifies that truth with Jesus. Again, right here in the first few verses, Jesus is God. There's no question that Jesus is God for Mark, and that's what he wants us to know. In verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel hair and a leather belt like this around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. When we read this description of John, we get stuck in the peculiar. Instead of seeing a pattern, we say, oh my goodness, he ate bugs. He ate, how could, and we see these cicadas flying around. That's the first thing. I went out yesterday into my front porch to get an Amazon package, and there was a cicada on the ground. And I picked it up, and it started buzzing, and I thought, ooh, I'm bringing this to church tomorrow, so I can, in my sermon, you know, make it buzz. He was in his last days, so I just let him go. But we focus on the wrong things when we see John the Baptist. What do we need to know when we see? Or another way, how, how can John model for us what it means to be a messenger of the gospel? So this is the second principle from this morning out of this text. As a messenger of the gospel, match your manner to your message. As a messenger of the gospel, match your manner to your message. You know, there's nothing worse than a hypocrite. Am I right? Everyone should be like, ooh, oh, right? Because we all do it. We all do it. There's not for nothing that Jesus God warns us, and the New Testament warns us to be careful of being a hypocrite. Before I became a believer, I used the bad examples and failing as Christians as fuel for my militant disbelief. How could that be real? Look at this. Look what they're doing. They're no different. In fact, I, they're worse than me. They're worse than me. Even as a Christian, I use that same sort of principle sometimes, and I know you guys too because we, we talk about it. But John gives us a different way. He embodies the message that he's preaching in his person and in his character. So let's look at some of those characteristics and see how they might apply to us. First, messengers of the gospel are bold. It says he preached this is a man who invited people out to the desert and preached, might I say, a message that would have made him unpopular to the religious leaders at the time. He preached. He was bold. He spoke frankly once to a king and got his head chopped off for it. He was bold. Now, we confuse, when we look at John the Baptist, brashness with boldness. We say, well, John the Baptist was bold. My pastor said that I should be bold, so I should railroad everybody in my life. I should be a bull in a china shop when it comes to the gospel. And then say, I'm just telling the truth. 
The word here means to speak plainly. The biblical word for boldness means to simply state the truth. It has no tinge of emotion to it. No tinge of emotion. Because you know as well as I do that we will deliver the truth with the wrong heart all the time. Just be honest. He was bold and he simply declared the truth. Even when it was unpalatable. And let me tell you, as you become better and better messengers of the gospel, it's going to become unpalatable. I was talking to someone yesterday and they said um, uh, they're having a hard time pulling away from old people, places, and things now that they're a believer. I said, just start living like a Christian. Just start talking like a Christian, living like a Christian. They'll leave you alone. They will. And it's true. And it's true. We need to be bold. Also, they live a repentant lifestyle. Well, how do we know this from John? He wore clothing of camel hair. I don't know about you, but camel hair is not silk. Okay? Camel hair is scratchy and abrasive and it is a demonstration of repentance sackcloth and ashes we see in the old testament it's something that makes us uncomfortable it's something that we never forget it reminds us of why we are here and what we are doing oh yeah i'm repenting again i'm repenting again it keeps our mind focused not only that but he did his work his ministry in the desert a place that is always associated in the Old Testament as a place of repentance and God's preparation of somebody. Going to do something new. Lord, I'm sorry, change me. That's what the desert does. That's what your desert you're in right now is doing. It's what it's intended to be done. Repent and ask God to change you. Repent and ask God to change you. Messengers of the gospel first separate themselves from sin and then invite others to do the same. There's an important order here. They first separate themselves from sin, then they invite others out. John was willing to live a life of repentance. So he could preach to those who he invited to that same life. He drew people away from the comforts to the desert where they could repent. Oftentimes we are called by God to deliver a message of truth and repentance when the people listening are seeking an easier, softer way. Yet often in life, the easier, softer way is the road to death. We need to go through struggles, not around them. And we need to call others to do it from a place of, I'm in the place that you are now. We, from a place of relatability, right? I've done this in my own life. I know how hard you should do it too. Yet he chose to suffer the difficulty to which he was calling others to himself. We cannot forget that. They demonstrate dependence on God. You know, he wasn't just eating bugs for show. He's not just a showman here. There's a reason he's eating bugs and eating wild honey. Because he's depending upon God for his every need, even in the place where there is nothing. The Judean desert looks like the face of Mars. There's nothing. It's rocky and craggy, very few bushes, very little water, hot, it's not a fun place. This is where he calls people to. We need to be dependent upon God in our life and our ministry. When we're bringing the message to others, we need to trust that God is the one who implants it in the heart. I don't know about how many times I've interacted with someone and it's as if I'm almost begging them. Like, if they don't get saved, it reflects on me. Or if they're living a life that they're struggling through, and they don't take my advice, and, pff, fine, whatever. 
you don't want advice, don't ask me. You guys know the same attitude. We need to trust the Lord and depend on him to implant that truth into the hearts of those we speak. Our lives should be a demonstration, should just be God's dependent, lived out before others. We're called to be dependent. How can we preach God's amazing ability to provide for anything? If we frantically grasp for whatever we can get our hands on or wring our hands in a moment of anxiety or perceived lack of something, we need to match our manner to our message. If what we preach is true, if Jesus is Lord and will make all things new, if Jesus has come to forgive us our sins, to give us the Holy Spirit and to live a new life, And then, on top of all of that, has promised to bring us to eternity where we will never again suffer pain or fear or worry or death. Why don't we live like it now? Why don't we live like it? Match your manner to your message. And finally, they humble themselves to exalt Christ. They minimize themselves to maximize the Savior. Often we look at people who are bold and outspoken as lacking in humility, don't we? They're know-it-alls. They're know-it-alls. What's another word? Windbag. Full of hot air. You know all the passages and all the statements that we or all the statements that we say. And sometimes they are. Yet John spoke simply the truth plainly to those who were willing to listen. These are people who left Jerusalem and walked to the River Jordan, which is not in Jerusalem. The Jordan River is probably 15 miles through the desert. These are people who came out to him. He spoke the truth to people who were willing and ready to listen. Yet despite his audience fame and even quirky personality, he humbled himself and exalted the Lord. How many of you seen the, the show The Chosen on the app? The Chosen. It's a, great, it's a great show that you can watch. It's a series. It, gives, it fills out the gospel a little bit. It's not the Bible, okay? So you always have to be judging what it says against God's word, but in it they call John the Baptist the weird one. You know, the weird one's here. Talk about John. And yeah, he probably was weird a little bit when you read this. He was weird for being wildly sold out to the truth of God's ability to provide for him. Yet despite all that, he minimized himself and he maximized Jesus. If I had a ministry like this, i got to be honest. If I had a ministry like this where I went out to the desert and people came out to see me, wearing my sackcloth and ashes, eating bugs and honey, I'd, I'd be very, very tempted. The Lord would have to do a major work on me to not make, let's, let's, how can we monetize this? How can we get AV equipment out here? We need generators, we need to get bottled water, we need to have, it made it a huge function. Yet it's just John and the truth. And even the truth was not about John, it was about Jesus. So the last thing I'd like us to discuss is how the confession of the messenger matters. Verse 7. And this was his message, spoken so plainly by Mark. And this was his message. John says, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Mark here tells us the substance of John's message. It is not, you are dead in your trespasses. But God is providing a savior. He does not go on to say, and the way we receive that savior's death is through faith. And one day he will glorify us. All of that is true. But what John focuses on here is the person of Jesus. 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 It's a message of hope and warning. One is coming. This tells us, and as we see people repenting and confessing their sins, we need to get right. We need to get right. We make the mistake in the church at times of assuming because that God has promised to save us once and for all, we can lay our feet off the gas. Take our feet off the gas. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. John says one is coming and he will usher in the last days with him. This is to what we all should be looking forward. We should be expecting in hope and in joy and anticipation of the coming of the one who make all things right. Not only is it a message of hope and warning, it's a message of power. John says, one is more powerful than I. John didn't even deny his own power. He didn't deny the fact that people were coming to see him. He says, but it's not me. One's coming who's greater than me. I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy. He minimizes his own abilities, his own ministry, his own message to exalt Jesus' ministry, Jesus' message, and Jesus' power. It's a message of self-effacement. Don't look at me, look at him. John says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and act like a slave. Like a slave. That's our third and final principle for this morning. As a messenger of the gospel, listen to this. It's revolutionary. As a messenger of the gospel, emphasize the message of the gospel. As a messenger of the gospel, emphasize the message of the gospel. Why do I say that? Because we will spend a lot of time talking about, and this is not necessarily wrong, but hear me. We will emphasize childhood traumas. We will emphasize cultural problems. We'll emphasize politics. We'll emphasize the latest pastor who's fallen in a long string. Lord, help me. We'll emphasize what the gospel can bring for you, what benefits it affords to you emotionally and relationally, which are true, but they're not the foundation. All of those are secondary. The message we proclaim is that Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus, his name means God will save. God saves. That Jesus is the plan of salvation. It's easy for us to lose sight of that, though. We make our ministry the centerpiece of our thinking. And it's not just pastors. I need to work in this particular ministry because this is what I've always done. And this is what good Christians do. They volunteer in a ministry and they do it for 85 years, you know. There is no retirement type of thing. Our message needs to always be, first and foremost, the message of Jesus. John could have said, uh, you know, like I said, we got a clear movement going on here. We need to organize, rent a fleet of vehicles. We need to get all this stuff. No, it was simply one is coming who is greater than I. One is coming who is greater than I. We will 
talk to people about Jesus and immediately shift gears to the vaccine. Why do we do that? The gospel is not the vaccine. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. We need to make what's important important again. When we talk to people who are struggling, who, who have had childhood traumas, who have had crazy lives, who people who just are in chaos or confusion right now, the answer is always, I'll give you the cheat sheet. Here's the answer. Jesus. Jesus. We say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. That does sound very confusing and chaotic. You must be really hurting right now. Have you told Jesus about this? You know, Jesus sees what's going on. You know, are you trusting in Jesus to get you through this? You know, the Bible says that Jesus says you don't have to worry about it because he knows every hair that's on your head. That is the answer. He is the answer. Emphasize the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. So, we're called to deliver a message. We're all messengers. Get that now. I'm a messenger. Who's a messenger in here? Raise your hand. Okay, every hand better be up. I ain't kidding. And you online, if you're at home, I want to see your hand raised. There we go. You're a messenger of the gospel. As messengers, you have been made for this moment. This is your time to act and to do what God has called you to do. As a messenger of the gospel, match your manner to your message. If you're a messenger of the gospel and you believe in Jesus and what he's done for you and will do for others, live like it. Live like it. And as a messenger of the gospel, emphasize the message of the gospel, Jesus. Emphasize Jesus. So what kind of messenger are you going to be? Okay, messenger of Jesus. Thank you, Shannon. Are you going to be a messenger who is going to shrink from the truth, sugarcoat the gospel, or not say anything at all? Or maybe what you do say is totally unrelated to Jesus. Are you going to be a messenger of the gospel of forgiveness, healing, and hope? The one way is God's way. The other way is yours. Let's pray. Father, we do love you, and we love that we even have a message to share. Lord, before, the message we had was one of judgment and condemnation, one of our own sin. Yet, you have promised through your Son to save us as we trust in him. And you backed it up, Lord, with his very death and resurrection. I pray, Father, that you would bless uh, this service, bless what I've spoken, Lord, and implant it into the hearts where you see fit and how you see fit. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we celebrate and remember uh, the death of your son. Give us, Lord, a moment to consider our own lives and give us a moment, Lord, to consider you. For we long to be in your presence. We ask that you would do that for your sake and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media, at GBC Elm. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbcelm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.